Good morning. Good morning. morning. My name is Lori Atkins. Let's begin class today with some prayer. Father God, we are very grateful for this class, um, the fact that we get to come here every week and physically connect with new friends, old friends, and and like-minded believers, and we we thank you for the blessing of this class. Uh, We ask for open hearts, open minds, and an outpouring of your spirit on our study today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are continuing our study on the prophet Jeremiah this week. We're studying lesson six in the quarterly. It's entitled Symbolic Acts. So we've talked a little bit about where the time of Jeremiah's calling fits in Israel's history as a nation. But I think it's important to understand the time of Jeremiah within the context of the wider historical perspective of of the nation of Israel. So this nation of Israel, characterized by seemingly endless repetitions of apostasy and rebellion, then repentance, then another repetition of apostasy and rebellion, These rebellious repetitions included a partially completed conquest, the time of judges with all its atrocities, the united monarchy with Saul's apostasy, then we had David's adultery, Solomon's idolatry, followed by the divided monarchy when Judah split off, an endless list of bad kings interrupted by a few good ones, then we had the Assyrian captivity of the northern tribes, and the degradation of Judah that finally led to the Babylonian exile. So it was a neat time in Israel's history. Um, During these times, God had sent men, women, judges, prophets, priests, and kings to bring about Israel's repentance and return to the Lord, but without success. It should not surprise us that God finally used symbols and messages that pointed to the irreversibility of his judgments. That's from the quarterly. So what do we think about that? Are his judgments irreversible? And if so, why? Wendell. Well... If you look at, you know, we've, we've used the medical model mm-hmm. classroom quite a bit. And um, you would want your physician's judgments to be reversible. Potentially. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, and, and yet you would want your physician to have good judgment. An accurate judgment. Accurate judgment. And so often the, the word judgment implies in that condemnation yes. or, or legal or something else, etc. Mm-hmm. And yet what we're talking about is truly decision-making and, and diagnosis. That's right. And whatever is, is correct. And so if we change, if we are converted and we turn around, then obviously that diagnosis is going to turn around. Correct. Yes, Russell. Yeah, I mean, dovetailing. When, when, when a patient comes into him with a with a fracture, he judges the patient has a fracture. Yes. 
and he, he makes recommendations that it may apply a cast or, or some surgical fixation, and if the patient takes the cast off and starts moving a fracture, then he will continue to judge the patient has a fracture. It's irreversible. It, it may become a non-union fracture, and, and the patient may have a joint where God didn't design a joint. Right. But if the patient follows along with the recommendations and the course of treatment, come back in 12 weeks, and Wendell judges, you don't have a fracture anymore. Does that mean he was wrong in the first place? Not at all. No. It means that, it means that a change has occurred in That's the right. patient. Yeah. I... It's an accurate judgment now. That's they were stunning. constantly messing up and asking God to help change them. Obviously. He did, a lot of times. Yeah, I have the validity of this statement. Obviously depends on how one defines judgment. So if you violate the law of respiration, you tie a bag over your head, is the judgment of that law violation irreversible? Unless you take the bag off your head and be, get back into harmony with the law of respiration, then the judgment is irreversible. But like Dr. Moses said, if you're talking about an accurate diagnosis of hearts, minds, and characters, then this statement is absolutely correct. And does anyone here think that if Israel earnestly repented and turned away from idolatry and the atrocities that they were doing, that the Babylonian exile might have been reversed. I think it could have been. So, and we've also talked about there, there are inescapable consequences of repeatedly ignoring God's instructions, his natural laws. Don't forget, this was partly about them not even listening to instructions about how the land should be farmed and should be allowed to rest every seven years and things like that. So they're removing themselves from his protection, from his natural laws, from the source of blessing. The memory text in Saturday's lesson is from Romans 9.21. The King James Version reads, Hath not the potter power over the clay? of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. Is that crystal clear for everyone? What, what, does, what does that make you think of, particularly when, when God is in the role of the potter? Calvinism, predestination. Yes. Irreversible judgment. <laughs> Exactly. So Paul is referencing here some of the symbolism that was used for Jeremiah, for his enlightenment, and by Jeremiah as he was trying to warn and convince the people and the leaders of Israel of the, the impending doom. Um, we're going to talk more about that in a bit, but I wanted to read this text in context from Dr. Jennings' Remedy, which is a New Testament translation available for iPhone, iPhone and Android devices. It's free. You can get it in your app store. I recommend it. So I'm starting with verse 16, reading a little bit more in context. And it says, Our healing doesn't depend on some effort 
desire or work on our part, but on the fact that God is merciful and offers the remedy freely to everyone. For the scripture says of Pharaoh, I raised you up so that I might pour out my truth upon you and that my character might be known throughout the entire world. And even though you resisted me and fought against me, I was patient and merciful with you. Therefore, God is merciful to whom he chooses and stern to those he chooses. One of you might protest and say, then why does God still blame us if he does whatever he wants anyway? But this complaint only shows how little you know about God and his methods and purposes. You confuse God's desire to heal and restore everyone to his original ideal with his wise plan to assign different duties and responsibilities to different individuals. You also fail to realize that different contributions require different applications of the remedy. Doesn't the potter have the right to use some clay to make pottery for noble uses and from the same clay to make pottery for ordinary uses? What if God, choosing to reveal what will happen, patiently continued to offer treatment to those who refuse his healing remedy, and yet they refuse to take his free cure anyway? What if, in this way, God revealed that such people prepare themselves for death and destruction? What if he did this to make the richness of his character known to those who would accept the remedy, and thus, by the revelation of the truth about himself, prepare them to be fully transformed into Christ-like glory? This is what he has done. He has called all people both Jews and Gentiles, to healing restoration, into Christ-likeness of character, and into partnership with him to spread the remedy. Does that hold a different meaning or a different interpretation for you? Also, if you go back to the beginning of that chapter, Paul starts out by saying of his desire that the Jewish people that he was part of, yes. who were blessed in so many different ways, having the law, having the prophets, right. having the, the history, they were without God's design. Right. And God was being generous to the, the, the heathen. And they were complaining, saying, wait a minute, that's not fair. Yeah. And it was like, this is not about fair. This is how gracious God is. Right. You know? And to think that, you know, we have turned this illustration into God's sovereignty and, well, he's going to twist something. And yet it's about God's graciousness. Absolutely. And mercy. Yeah. Across the board. So what is, yes, in the back. Um, a comment from an online listener. Uh, when we say God's judgments are irreversible, some people think God makes happen what his foreknowledge tells him will happen. It's the other way around. God's judgment only states what is truth. In Israel's case, God had determined that exile would be necessary to awaken the people to their ungodly condition. That was irreversible because God had determined it was necessary. I think that's very true. Very well said. And yes, we, I think we do often confuse foreknowledge with predestination or God making something happen just because he knows for sure it will happen in the future and prophesies about it or predicts it does not mean that there's a causal effect there. And she had a PS to that. Uh-huh. She said, but one of the things clarified in the prophets, especially Habakkuk, is that your actions still have their natural effect on you 
even though you did what God had for uh, what God had foreknown you would do. Absolutely. So what is a symbol? How do we define a symbol? Something that refers to something else. Yeah, it's typically an object lesson, something that points to something usually bigger, a bigger concept, a bigger reality, a bigger spiritual truth maybe. And of course, symbols, symbolic acts, they have a huge significance all the way throughout Scripture. The Bible's filled with symbols, symbolic rites and rituals, acts. Jesus himself used many parables, object lessons, and symbols in his teaching to explain deep spiritual truths. What are some common problems that come from the extensive use of symbols and symbolic language? Confusing the symbol with the reality it represents. Yes. Focusing too much or exclusively on the symbol rather than on the object or reality. So if you, if you have a real physical object and you have a shadow of that object, which is sometimes what a symbol is referred to, if you want to learn more about the object, does it make sense to study the shadow, which is only a dim reflection, or does it make sense to study the actual object that's casting the shadow? So can you think of any biblical examples where perhaps folks got caught caught up too much in the symbols versus the actual reality that they were designed to teach. Yes. Sabbath at the time of Jesus. Yes. It's a symbol of our relationship with God and knowing him and in, in the freedom that he gives us. And it became, instead of the means to an end, it became the end itself. And in fact, it became the exact opposite of right. that. You would not look at the, the Jewish Sabbath in the time of Christ and say that it represented truth, love, and freedom. And Jesus had to tell them Sabbath was not made for, um, Sabbath made for man. Exactly, exactly. Yes? Sacrifice in the sanctuary system. That's, I have pretty much the entire sanctuary system. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about, about that, about how really twisted we think that, that the Israelites became focused in on the actual rituals, the services, the, the sacrifices, and completely missed the plan or the, the pointing to the plan of salvation that, that Christ intended. So there's also significant opportunity for misunderstanding both the symbol and the object. Particularly, it, it goes both ways. If we misunderstand the ultimate reality, then we very likely misinterpret the symbols. And if we in, misunderstand the symbols, we're probably not going to interpret the reality correctly either. Um, and look how a misunderstanding of the penal substitution atonement model of salvation can cause the earthly sanctuary symbols and rituals to be misinterpreted. There's a quote from Christ Object Lessons in Saturday's lesson, and it speaks effectively to the subject. But as I, I read the entire chapter... Um, and the paragraphs before and after what was quoted in the lesson really spoke to me and encouraged me in my study. Um, especially, maybe I'm the only one, but when studying some of these symbols or beasts or prophecies or things that, for me, sometimes they're very difficult and this, my study can be frustrating. So hopefully this encourages you as well. 
The words of truth will grow in importance and assume a breadth and fullness of meaning of which we have never dreamed. The beauty and riches of the word have a transforming influence on mind and character. The light of heavenly love will fall upon the heart as an inspiration. The appreciation of the Bible grows with its study. Has anyone found that to be true? Whichever way the student may turn, he will find displayed the infinite wisdom and love of God. The significance of the Jewish economy is not yet fully comprehended. And that was written a hundred years ago, and I would submit, still not. Truths vast and profound are shadowed forth in its rites and symbols. The gospel is the key that unlocks its mysteries. Through a knowledge of the plan of redemption, its truths are opened to the understanding. Far more than we do, it is our privilege to understand these wonderful themes. We are to comprehend the deep things of God. So when you hear, and you'll read it in this week's quarterly, that God's ways are higher than our ways, we don't understand how he works. Is that true on some level? Yes, we're finite, he's infinite. But the title of this class and our, our goal is, I think we are designed to understand his methods, his principles, the way his laws function, the way he set up his universe to operate. And I think he's given us evidence of that. We are to comprehend the deep things of God. Angels desire to look into the truths that are revealed to the people who with contrite hearts are searching the word of God and praying for greater lengths and breadths and depths and heights of the knowledge which he alone can give. In giving us his word, God has put us in possession of every truth essential for our salvation. Thousands have drawn water from these wells of life, yet there is no diminishing supply. Thousands have set the Lord before them, and by beholding have been changed into the same image. Their spirit burns within them as they speak of his character, telling what Christ is to them and what they are to Christ. But these searchers have not exhausted these grand and holy themes, Thousands more may engage in the work of searching out the mysteries of salvation. As the life of Christ and the character of his mission are dwelt upon, rays of light will shine forth more distinctly at every attempt to discover truth. Each fresh search will reveal something more deeply interesting than has yet been unfolded. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so for those not still searching for truth. This is, this is applicable. Rays of light will shine forth more distinctly at every attempt to discover truth. Each fresh search will reveal something more deeply interesting than has yet been unfolded. The subject is inexhaustible. The study of the incarnation of Christ, his atoning sacrifice and mediatorial work, which is with us, not with the father, will employ the mind of the diligent student as long as time shall last, and looking to heaven with its unnumbered years, he will exclaim, great is the mystery of godliness. Amen. So yeah, for anybody that thinks that we arrive at the truth, either right here, right now, or ever, this search, this quest is going to go on for eternity, and we're promised that every single attempt 
will give us more enlightenment. Yes, Joelle. I think that every time we read the Bible, a lot of times, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, I've read that. Yeah. But every time we read it, life changes us. Yes. And so when we come back to it, we see it differently. As we experience life, as we, as we experience growth in Christ, yes. we see it totally differently. And Brian and I were just smiling because on this, because I just finished studying the book of Exodus. Mm-hmm. And you think, okay, that's stories. Right. You know, we know it's, it's so different from the New Testament. Mm-hmm. It's stories. And you read the story of what the Israelites went through and Mo- Moses and right. trying to deal with them and everything. And I had underlined some things going through that I don't remember when I read <laughs> Exodus before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I like when I finished reading a book or a book of the Bible or whatever, and I've underlined afterwards, go back and just read my underlines and get an overall picture. Interesting. Yeah. What you and I actually had to take my journal and write down just the text and what it said to me. Mm-hmm. And I read them to Brian yesterday morning, and we were just like, couldn't believe <laughs> the deeper meanings for yeah. today. Mm-hmm. For and today, the and how it applies yeah. to our lives now. Absolutely. Not just them then, but things, and also from how our understanding has of changed. God is growing. Yeah. We understood them totally, totally differently. Different. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well said. Yeah. You went out. If you ever feel like your Bible study is futile or that you're not getting it, that quote is from you. It's from Christ's Object Lessons at page 132 and 133. So, as was just stated in that quote, and I'm adding a word, a correct understanding of the gospel is the key that unlocks these symbols. So let's keep that in mind. We're going to examine some of these Old Testament symbols that... that Jeremiah used. I find studying the Bible, I'm going through the New Testament this year too. So many things that I have known before become better embedded, but mm-hmm. in order for it to do it, sometimes I have to go back and read it the second time. Oh, at right least then, twice. You know, yeah. go back over it because it, the face of it just doesn't sink. <laughs> yeah. Nowhere to sink, you know. So let's look at Sunday's lesson. Sunday's lesson is entitled Truth in Symbols. The first one mentioned here is the symbolic sacrifices of Cain and Abel. This is told in Genesis 4, 3 through 7. Does somebody want to read real quickly that, that story in Genesis 4, 3 through 7? Go ahead. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why was your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, watch out, sin is crouching at the door. And his desire is for you, but you must master it. So has this story always sounded a skosh arbitrary to anyone other than me? 
So let's look at, so what do we know? What do we know about these brothers? What their symbols, their offerings might have represented? Well, we know from verse 2, before you started reading, Cain was a farmer and Abel was a shepherd or a herdsman. So that explains a little bit about the significance of the offerings that each one of them chose. Um, as far as timing is concerned, most versions say some time has passed or it came to pass, but apparently the Hebrew literally reads at a specific appointed time. So it, there is some indication that this was an agreed-upon event, prearranged, perhaps included some instruction to the brothers, but how much or if that happened, we don't really know. But it seems like the physical contents of the sacrifice or what was to be offered is at least somewhat important. Why else would God be so incredibly detailed and specific in his sanctuary sacrifice instruction? Didn't it seem like those were, those were rather detailed and specific? But... In these two uh, offerings, there may have been some sibling rivalry there to begin with. And I don't know but what the, the uh, vegetable or fruit or whatever the offering was wouldn't have been accepted had it not been for that jealousy between brothers. But they say that he asked for a lamb offering. Well, we don't... How was the, uh, Cain supposed to obtain a lamb offering when he didn't have any available? We don't know that they were that they were asked for something specific to offer. But you may be onto something that Cain's reaction mm-hmm. or what may have been in his heart might have been more important than what was on the altar. Yes. Was not the lamb sacrificed uh, what was representing Christ? So it didn't begin in the time when. Uh, Adam and Eve left the garden. He did kill a lamb. He provided them with clothing. So there was a an animal offering. But it's to me, it's very unclear whether they had been given sacrificial rituals that they were supposed to do that every so often at because this is right after they got out of the garden. They had two two boys. And then it says some time passed. You know what I mean? So the what I see through what I was reading, I know I can be wrong, but what I understood is that uh, before the Israel, I mean, the, when we start, they were ready sacrificing, right? And they were uh, giving uh, their firstborn, their first. I don't know. I can see some kind of connection with that. In my case, like very possibly. I, I mean, God looked like God provided it give the lamb because that represents Christ coming. Mm-hmm. And it was a symbol so they can realize that Christ was coming. And the Bible says without blood we cannot be saved. I mean the blood was the the the, main, the, the symbol of salvation. So that was what God was requiring. Now Cain of course he was a, a, a farmer mm-hmm. say that. So he was producing, he was maybe giving his best but he was not giving the, the requirement for his salvation because the salvation was the blood. That's why I see there. The well, we're going to talk a bit about a little about what is required mm-hmm. for us to sacrifice. Yes, Russell. Uh, I just want to clear something up. Uh, scripture, scripture doesn't say that God killed uh, a lamb to give them the um, 
to give them the coverings of it was an animal lamb skin. He just said he provided them with skin. He could have spoken out of thin air, for all mm-hmm. we know. Um, and and I think based on uh, based on my understanding of God's character, that he wouldn't have killed one of his creatures to provide them. He may have asked them to do it, or he may have told them that. Here are the steps needed to provide yourself some covering. And food. I mean, everything changed oh, yeah. at this point. That's right, but so, it doesn't say that God it killed, doesn't. A, um, killed an animal to provide them for, for some clothing. And getting back to the, the original um, question here about the, the sacrifice, uh, the, the gentleman over here uh, is, is correct in that, you know, the... The symbolism of the life being in the blood, you know, that this was this was a plan of salvation ordained back before from the before foundation of the existence. world. So uh, I think God is, is consistent with himself yeah. in that if he's going to if he's going to try to teach an object lesson to humanity and try to reveal try to win them back to trust and try to reveal his character through a series of, of sacrifices or symbolic acts, then he's going to be consistent with himself. And, uh, you know, Cain wishing to provide uh, the fruit of his labor, uh, and whether he had a, um, whether he had a, a heart, uh, a corrupt heart, or, or really wishing to say, well, you know, God, I know you said this, but this is what I do, and this is what I want to give right. um, it, it it's it's revelatory of of um, him not being teachable, right? Uh, among other things, yeah. So, yes, um, I think it, it probably goes back to the question of what was in the heart, because if you look at the difference between a farmer and a herdsman, mm-hmm. um, a farmer offering the first fruits of his crop, what's going to be in his heart? Look what I did. Yeah. Look at the amazing fruit that I brought forth. But if you've got somebody who's been caring for a flock and, you know, now he's got to kill one of them. What's in his heart? Change, sorrow. Um, Which of those two more accurately represents repentance? Exactly. Yes, Wendell. Without getting too far afield. Take us. Sin offerings did not require blood. There were Correct. sin offerings that were had nothing to do with blood. They did have to do with life. Yes. So, so the grain offerings that were crushed yep. and the life was destroyed mm-hmm. to, had nothing to do with blood, but did have something to do with life. Correct. You know, you know, sin does lead to death, but it's not imposed. Right. In the back. Listeners, Keith from Canada wanted to have mentioned that it says uh, that Cain brought some while Abel brought his finest. I'm not sure what mm. version he's referring to. Right. They're probably familiar with those words. No, and I did in my study, there was there is some debate about whether Cain brought all or whether he brought the best of his first fruits and things like that. But my point is with the sanctuary sacrifice, like I said, I don't know that I, I've read as detailed instructions as they were given. 
for how and what they were supposed to do with every part of the animal in every part of the sanctuary, from the outer court all the way into the most holy place. So that specific instructions only later to tell the Israelites in Amos, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. Then in the preamble to what may be this class's favorite Bible passage in Isaiah 1, why this frenzy of sacrifice? God's asking, don't you think I've had my fill of burnt sacrifices, rams and plump grain-fed calves? Don't you think I've had my fill of blood from bulls, lambs and goats? When you come before me, whoever gave you the idea of acting like this, running here and there, doing this and that, all this sheer commotion in the place provided for worship. Quit your worship charades. I can't stand your trivial religious games. Monthly conferences, weekly Sabbaths, special meetings, meetings, meetings. I can't stand one more meeting. I'm sick of your religion while you go on sinning. When you put on your next prayer performance, I'll be looking the other way. No matter how long or loud or often you pray, I will not be listening. And do you know why? Because you've been tearing people to pieces and your hands are bloody. Go home and wash up. Clean up your act. Sweep your lives clean of your evil doings so I don't have to look at them any longer. Say no to wrong. Learn to do good. Work for justice. Help the down and out. Stand up for the homeless. Go to bat for the defenseless. Come, sit down. Come, let us reason together. If your sins are blood red, they'll be snow white. If they're red like crimson, they'll be white like wool. So what is God really looking for in our sacrificial offerings? I have some texts that may enlighten us. Romans 12.1 Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The message says, take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and rock, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Psalm fifty-one, seventeen: My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. And I think we can tell some from Cain's reaction what might have been in his heart. Because his reaction was rather dramatic to being chastened or instructed by God. Because to me, God didn't sound angry. It sounded like he was giving him a correction on his attempt. But his reaction to it was what was so dramatic and what led 
to be angry enough to murder. And isn't that our reaction? What, what God said to him there, that sin is at your door, waiting for you, crouching for you, but you have to master it. That's like the, the text that we talked about a couple weeks ago. I don't know what the, the reference is. But he says, he who, who struggles with sin is done with it. Just like saying, he who struggles with a nicotine addiction is done with smoking. You know what I mean? So as we wrestle that out and rid ourselves of, of the slavery to sin, we're a master of it. That's what he wanted for us. And that's what, what got to me from, from these texts. I mean, from the point Adam and Eve fell that night when he came in the garden and asked where they were, he began working on them, interceding with them from providing them skins, from teaching them the offering. Again, from the slain from the foundations of the world, he immediately started trying to win them back to trust, ask, asking them why they were afraid, trying to win them back so that he could show them his plan of salvation, transform them back. Okay, <clears throat> so we have a second symbolic act mentioned in Sunday's lesson, talking about the fiery copper serpent lifted up on a pole in the desert as a means of salvation for the Israelites who were bitten by snakes. This story is found in Numbers 21, 4 through 9. Somebody want to read Numbers 21, 4 through 9 for us? They traveled from Mount Moore along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no... No bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. <laughs> You're talking about the uh, manna? Oh, yeah. Apparently. Wow. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. What do we think about that story? God feeding his people where they are. Yes. Definitely dealing with level one, level two, max thinkers. Yes, Wendell. Okay, so I'm an Israelite. I'm about 12 rows out yeah. in my tent, and I get bitten by a snake, okay? That God sent, by the way. Regardless, I, I got bitten by a snake, okay? For me to look at the pole means that I have to do something. Either I have to be transported by my friends, or I have to hobble, whatever, if I can hobble. to... The place where the, the pole is. Now, theoretically, a pole could be moved to where you are. Right. But with people all over the camp yeah. being bitten, it's probably not going to be run up and down the halls yeah. or the whatever. And so, just, just thinking about that, you have to move and show some, some belief mm-hmm. that your actions are going to have a positive effect. Yes. Otherwise, you're not going to just look. Just look in case. Right? Um, 
this week, this past week, I had an unfortunate event, which I became in extreme pain, and I could not move for about two hours. Now, during that time, I, um, I thought, well, if my wife calls an ambulance, I can't get on the stretcher. Okay. And I thought about the story. Right. If I was bitten by a snake that was threatening my life, mm-hmm. I probably could not have moved onto that whatever. Right. And it would take my family and me both believing that it would make a difference before I would be made well. Like the guys that lowered the paralytic down. Yeah. yeah. And so this is more than just, oh, oh, let's look over at the snake and look. You know? I like it. You know, and so this had something to do with really belief. Yeah. You really believe that this was happening, you know. And true, there's nothing magical in the snake. Eventually the snake had to be destroyed. But, you know. Right. Anyway. I like that. Yeah. The power was in God's word. Mm-hmm. God's the one who spoke it to be created. God's yep. the one who spoke him to look and spoke what healing they would receive. That's right. Yes. And their quote in uh, Sunday's lesson from Patriarchs and Prophets, Reads, the Israelites saved their lives by looking upon the uplifted serpent. That look implied faith. They lived because they believed God's word and trusted in the means provided for their recovery. That faith and trust in the means provided for our recovery, the remedy provided by Christ, it's still how we're saved today. Let's look at Monday's lesson. We're going to go to pottery class. Please. Please, I know you have material. (laughs) The paragraph after that in the lesson. Yes. It says, um, All through the Old Testament, the earthly sanctuary service was the most detailed, symbolic representation of the plan of salvation. How much the Israelites understood about the meaning rituals have been open to question, yeah. though no doubt they did grasp the most important of all truths taught there, <laughs> substitutionary atonement. The idea that in order for their sins to be forgiven, a substitute had to die in their stead. I have that in here with thoughts, question mark, after it. <laughs> I skipped it. Yeah. It's like, if you, if you thought the most important part of the sanctuary service, what would it be? You know? Yeah. Substitutionary atonement would not rise to my top of ten list. Right. Okay? Not now. You know, (laughs) he started out by saying, make a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That'd be number one. God wants to dwell with his people. Right. Where did he put it? He put it in the middle of the camp. You know, Mm -hmm. the whole ritual, you know, this had very little, I think, to do with substitutionary atonement for you know, someone dying in, in place, etc., had all to do with God's grace, God's mercy, yes. and Absolutely. other aspects that Agreed. were much more important. Yeah. John three sixteen, God gave. gave. You, know, mm-hmm. you know, I can think of a lot more important things that came out of the sanctuary service than that. Yeah, I agree. You know. Yes. Yeah, what I I seen the sanctuary to as symbols, you know. What was Christ was going to do, and when we study the sanctuary, we can see certain things what can help us to understand mm-hmm. what was the God mission. Yeah. Even when we know in the time when Israel was moving on, 
they did certain symbols, like when they crossed the, the Jordan River, yeah. they said, put 12 stones there. So you yep. can remember exactly God what did here. Yeah. So God used symbols and things like that because we need it. Oh, absolutely. Right? So all these things is because God put there. Now, they are important. Yeah, they are important. But the, 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 the final goal is that we have to understand who is God and what God wants for us. Well said. Yeah. yeah. Okay, back to pottery class. Monday's lesson. So we're given some passages to read related to Jeremiah's experience with the potter's clay and a shattered vessel. First up is Jeremiah 18, 1 through 10. I have that this from the message. And the message titles this section of the Bible, To Worship the Big Lie, which I thought was interesting. God told Jeremiah, up on your feet, go to the potter's house. When you get there, I'll tell you what I have to say. So I went to the potter's house, and sure enough, the potter was there, working away at his wheel. Whenever the pot the potter was working on turned out badly, as sometimes happens when you are working with clay, the potter would simply start over and use the same clay to make another pot. Then God's message came to me. Can't I do just as this potter does, people of Israel? God's decree. Watch this potter. In the same way that this potter works his clay... I work on you, people of Israel. At any moment, I may decide to pull up a people or a country by the roots and get rid of them. But if they repent of their wicked wet lives, I will think twice and start over with them. At another time, I might decide to plant a people or country. But if they don't cooperate and won't listen to me, I will think again and give up on the plans I had for them. Any thoughts about this passage? And as God may be pointing out some of the differences between a creator and his creation. Yes. I haven't done much pottery. My wife did some as part of her like, art class. Uh-huh. And what I found out is that if you if something happened and you you it didn't form correctly mm-hmm. in your hands, the next time you could not make as fine a pot. As the first time, right? Because the clay had changed its consistency, mm-hmm. and so still you worked with that clay, yes. and you could make a useful vessel, mm-hmm. even something beautiful, even something beautiful. But it was probably not as good as he originally had designed for it, right? But he continued to strive with it to make a useful product out of that clay. Yes. So not as someone arbitrarily choosing to make right. one pot beautiful and one pot ordinary. I think you also look at the lens you look through again. Totally. Was God punishing the people he was going to bring up that chose a different way, Mm -hmm. annihilating them, or was he accepting their decision? Right, and still working and molding and pleading with them. And I mean, I think that's very applicable to, to humanity. Based on what happened with Adam and Eve, can we here on this earth, ever be what we were intended to be the way God originally created us. I don't think we can until, until we're re- reincarnated and given the bodies and the minds and that we were intended to have. I think we can perfect our characters. That's right. I think we can perfect our characters while we're alive. No, you said reincarnated. I just, yeah. 
Yes, at the resurrection. Okay. Yeah, or or when I come back as a rat. <laughs> Was there another comment? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe I should have just should have disclosed that. <laughs> well, and we also talked about if you have a pot and you're forming it and you you find some imperfections and you work through it, and maybe you're refining it, and you're actually cleansing it of those imperfections each iteration, each time you go through. And I think that's very applicable to what, what's happening with us and the work that God is doing within us. Yes? I'm thinking about you know this idea of the symbol and the reality mm-hmm. and the relationship between the two. And this, this might be a good example of a time where, as usual, the metaphor can only go so far. Right. And so this happens. This is, you know, this is clay in a potter. But if we put more reality into the metaphor, this would be clay that can choose to be on that wheel or yes, not be on. Yes, exactly. That wheel. It's clay with freedom. Yes. And uh, which is, of course, you know, it doesn't work <laughs> so well. But maybe God is saying, "You need me so much more than you think you do." Right. <laughs> you want to go your own way. Oh. The best thing you could do would be to rest in me on my potter's wheel and let me do with with you a work that you can't even yes. imagine right now. Oh, my next you note. Your clay that can run off from the wheel. <laughs> and my next note asks, am I the only one who fancies themselves a potter most of the right. time? We are playing. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Russell. <laughs> I, like, uh, I like what Wendell said about the clay being... Um, Maybe a little less malleable, or a little less consistent, or right. a little less, um, <clears throat> a little more difficult to work with. You know, after you know repeated efforts. And I got to thinking about you know the rest of the pottery uh, experience is the is the kiln. Yeah. And you know, in the in the in the heat of of the crucible or the heat of the affliction, we are either our consciences are either formed for. Right. A vessel of usefulness, or their form for a vessel uh, to be destroyed. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of applicability. Um, yes. Well, when I I see the, the the you know working with uh, with clay and looking God and looking the Bible uh, in the New Testament, Jesus says uh, the Holy Spirit will work in you and will you know when He was talking with Nicodemus and He says. Uh, if you are not baptized by the water and the Holy Spirit, you will not, you know. And there, uh, he says, but you will be changed. You will not realize. So what I see is God intervening in us, working in our heart, changing our heart, because we human, we cannot do it. We have, right. we have the inclination, because we already give up God, and we give up our heart, mm-hmm. give our heart to the, to the wrong direction. Right. We have that direction. And the only way how we can do is, and the Bible says, uh, you know, uh, uh, I can paraphrase watching Christ and all this learning from Him. Only that's, that's the way how we can learn. Now God is working there through the Holy Spirit, fixing our heart, right? So that is there is when I see what He says, uh, like Father, I will work with you. Yes. But allow me to work with you. Oh, absolutely. That is when we, we have to cooperate because we choose. Oh, God will work in me. Oh no, I mean yeah. I don't want. I will resist. Like in this case, uh, Cain resist God, mm-hmm. and he went further and further until he killed his brother. Yeah. See, he he is Lord. He knew. He knew who was God. He talked with God. Mm-hmm. He knew better than all of us who was God, and he understood better than all of us what he was doing. Right. He was 
stubbornness is hard, and he said, I will do my way. And what was his way ended his brother life. Absolutely. So yeah, go for it. So if we look at ourselves as the uh, clay on the potter's wheel, if we look at the potter, the potter is has all power, all strength, is a perfect, perfect at his craft. Yeah. And uh, and he has the ability to speak and create things. And this is just what he wants to create with us while we're on the wheel. And this is him speaking to Israel. In Exodus 19. Mm-hmm. So these words have life in them. They actually can create something if right. we let it. So yes. It's not a problem with a potter. No, right? never. <laughs> so, and, uh, but he's saying, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And that, it's just, can you imagine yeah. how corrupt we are that we can't, we can't, uh, we can't believe that. No, oh, exactly. And what high and lofty goals and purpose he had for this Israelite nation. We're going to talk about that. Well, no, we won't. <laughs> yes, Wendell. The, the text he just read about peculiar treasure. Yeah. That comes, that, that word peculiar I grew up in a church that believed we should look peculiar. Yes. You know. The more the better. Going aside from that, what that word is talking about is a king has a lot of jewels. Yes. But within that group of jewels, he has a select set that is incredibly precious right. and unique. And distinguishable that word. from all the rest. Precious. The most precious yes. of all the jewels. That's his peculiar treasure. It is. That's what he wanted his people to be. Yeah. My time in the potter's chair, thinking that I can control my situations, mold my circumstances, mold other people, we're very rarely in the potter's position. I have a comment from Keith. Yes. Um, says that if a potter tries to make a fine vessel, but the quality of the clay is poor enough, that it won't support the desired thin walls and fine detail, he'll still make it a useful vessel, even if it isn't as, u- as useful as it could be if the clay were of better quality. Mm. I like it. All right, so let's move. Oh, I wanted to talk about poor Jeremiah. Has, has anybody ever else heard that Jeremiah is often referred to as the weeping prophet. Does anybody know why he got that nickname? So he faced nearly constant rejection and persecution of his message. His message wasn't one of glad tidings, but still. So he was undoubtedly discouraged. He may have wondered at times whether saving or fighting for this Israelite nation was worth the struggle. He also, he talked about in chapter 9, verse 1, that he wanted to weep a fountain of tears for the slain of his own people. And apparently he was only about 17 when God called him as a prophet. He had great inner turmoil over the fate, what he knew was the fate of his people. He begged them to listen. He cried tears of sadness, not only because he knew what was about to happen, because no matter how hard he tried, the people would not listen. Furthermore, he likely had no human comfort. 
God had forbidden him to marry or have children, and his friends had turned their backs on him. So along with the burden of the knowledge of impending doom, he must have also felt very lonely. But it is this trait of deep empathy for those he continually chastises that differentiates him from his prophetic brothers and sisters. This profound connection that Jeremiah maintains with his people leads him to astonishing admissions of personal grief, anguish, and fury in his so-called confessions, which are searing portraits of what it is like to do the work of God for 40 years and to receive, in return, little more than condemnation and hatred from those he has been sent to preach to. That would make me weep. Yes? Would you say the Spirit of God was with Jeremiah? Absolutely. I think Adventists need to repent because we have the same message to give, and I don't think there's near enough weeping. Oh, I agree. Or empathy. Yeah. Wendell? Jeremiah wrote Lamentations as well. Yes. Exactly. And it's a, it's a, it's a similar theme. Yes. Yeah. Oh, we're over time. That's too bad. Wendell and I had much more to, <laughs> to tell you. <laughs> um, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, again, we are, we are just overcome with gratitude that you, you show yourself and your character and your willingness to work with us no matter what, no matter how lumpy or dry or stubborn or uncooperative clay we might be. Um, we ask that, that you continue this work, soften us, soften our hearts, uh, make us open and trusting of the remedy that you've provided and the healing that you have promised. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.